last June, as we were beginning a reinitiation of our prayer ministry, I went through Matthew chapter 6, and we and our care groups have gone through the Nine Marks prayer book as a way of applying the truths related to prayer to our lives individually, to our lives as a church, with the hope and the prayer that God would begin the process of creating a culture of prayer amongst our church so that it is something that we naturally turn towards, something that we long for, something that we prioritize in our life. And as I had preached that message some seven months ago, and as we've talked about it through our care group, and in our Bible studies on Saturday mornings in the men's group, we've been looking at prayer as a continued emphasis. And so we looked back at this passage and these uh, beginning words in Matthew chapter 6, and we revisited these again yesterday with the intent of applying them to the Beatitudes. Well, we never made it to the Beatitudes. We, we stayed in these first three verses. And so as we look at Matthew chapter 6, I'm reminded that this teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples came very early in his ministry. These were Jewish men who were accustomed to the Jewish religious practice, and they, their lives had been, in, had been intersected by the profound person of Christ, His teaching, and His mode of praying, and they recognized that they lacked what they heard and what they saw in the life of Christ, and they longed for that for themselves. So the rote prayers from memory were not what they'd heard Jesus pray. They found them insufficient to express their heartfelt need. And so they asked Jesus to teach them to pray as he prayed. So the opening verses of this prayer are so deep and so profound and so important to the life of a believer in a church that I felt compelled to go through these verses again in more depth and with greater application than we did some seven or eight months ago. So I'm thankful to the guys that were there yesterday who prompted this conversation, who reopened the awareness of the need for this in my life and in our life as a church. And I believe that God used that to help me understand that this is a pressing need for each of us, and it's never overly emphasized in our lives. So this prayer that we're going to look at is probably the most memorized passage in all the Bible. It is recited in churches all over the world. It's recited in locker rooms before or after a big game. It has been recited in places all over the world every day. And so we're going to recite this together. And I would assume you can do this from memory. And we will substitute the word debt for the word trespasses. So from Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said to his disciples, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So as Jesus begins this teaching on prayer, he begins in verse 9, Our Father 
who is in heaven. And of all the words that could have been used, Jesus emphasized the relational aspect of the Father, our Father, His Father. And this was not new information for the Jews. They understood God to be the Father of the nation of Israel. And so this term Father communicates to us a sense of intimacy, one who loves us and provides for us, one who looks out for and can be depended upon in these lives that we live. Now, especially since He is our Father in heaven, unlike an earthly father who is influenced and affected by sin, the Father loves us and looks out for us without any of the contamination of sin, without any ulterior motives, without any preconceived ideas, only to be the Father and we as His children to lovingly and to longingly submit ourselves before Him. Our Heavenly Father is different. He is perfectly concerned for us and desires to lead us to a holy and a righteous life always doing what is best for us. He is eager to lend His ear. He is eager to provide His power. He is eager to provide His eternal blessing to the petitions of His children if it serves them best and further reveals His purposes and His glory. Do you believe that to be true? You see, all that we can say that we believe about God in our minds, we have to continually ask ourselves the question, yes, I say I believe that is true, but do we really and truly believe it to be true in such a way that it continually has a profound impact on who we are and how we live our lives. This is the challenge that we have. It is to put our money where our mouth is. It is where the rubber meets the road. It's where we prove to be doers of the Word and not just hearers only. So in this prayer, we're going to look only at the first two verses in this prayer. There are three key phrases that we're going to deal with over the next couple or three weeks. After Jesus addresses the Father, who is the object of this prayer, He very quickly turns to the heart of the matter. The first key phrase is, Hallowed be your name. Now the second key phrase that we're not going to look at today is, Your kingdom come. And the third key phrase that we're going to look at in in the next message or two is, Your will be done. But for right now, we're going to look at this key phrase of, Hallowed be your name. Our Father who is in heaven... Hallowed be your name. This is the chief purpose of prayer. And the chief purpose of the Christian life is that our Father's name would be hallowed. Now, it's not a word that we often use. And so the word hallowed means to make holy or to bring glory to. Now, what we we must understand is that we don't create the holiness that is in God's name. He is holy. He is already holy. But we have the ability to bring glory to His name by our attitudes and by our actions. The name of God means much more than just His titles. It encompasses all of who He is, describing both His character and His actions. Our understanding of who God is is incomplete. And our ability to fully define and describe Him is also incomplete. It would almost be like saying the oceans of the world are broad and deep. 
Well, yeah, they are. But is there a lot more to that? Well, yeah, there is. Did you know that they estimate that nearly 90 to 95 percent of the world of the of the oceans on the earth are unexplored and perhaps even unexplorable? Our ability to define and describe and to understand the complexity that is within these bodies of water around us are incomplete. And in a similar way, our understanding of who God is and our ability to describe Him completely is not possible. We have a lot of words and we assign these words to God and they help us to understand and they help us to apply, but they are incomplete. Here is a sampling of some of the words that we use to define who God is. And these are known as the attributes of God. God is eternal. He has always been. I remember hearing that when I was a Christian. When I first became a Christian, I was like, well, wait a minute. What do you mean God has always been? How how do you understand that? How do you explain that? That doesn't make any sense to me. But it's the truth. God has always been. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. He is in need of nothing. He is in need of no one. He is sovereign. He is in complete control over His creation, over all of the nations, and over all people in every land. He is immutable, which means God never changes. He is omniscient, which means He knows all things. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He is omnipotent, which means He is all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is no place that we can go away from His presence. He is imminent, which means He is never far away. He is perfect without any fault or any blemish. He is completely unique, meaning there is no one that is like Him. He is holy, which means He's pure in character. He is righteous, which means He is pure in His actions. He is faithful, which means He keeps all of His promises. He is just, which means He is always consistent with His character through His actions. He is loving, seeking the best for all. He is gracious, giving free, unmerited favor to us. He is merciful, not giving to us what we deserve. He is forgiving, cleansing us from all our guilt and all our sin. He is kind, which means He is compassionate in His actions towards us. He is generous. He gives freely and abundantly. He is patient, which means He is slow to anger. We have to decide, are these words used to describe God accurate? Do we really and truly believe these words to be true? Is our life fully submitted to what these truths communicate to us about the person of God. If we aren't truly in awe of who He is, as incompletely as we can define and describe Him, we will most certainly not bring Him the glory that He is due. What should be our response to what we intellectually believe to be true about the character of God. Well, the Psalms give us an expected response. Our response to God is very simply in Psalm 34, Sing praise to the Lord, you His godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name. Psalm 97, 12, 
Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to His holy name. Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Psalm 119.9 He has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. For us, His children, bringing glory to His name, should be our highest priority. And in reality, it is where the Christian life begins. Who is He? He is the great God who has revealed Himself to us through His created world, through His eternal Word. He has intersected our lives through the cross of Christ. And this is where our Christian life begins, bringing glory to the one who is uniquely different from anyone else. The question is very simply, how well are we doing this? How often are we doing this? And how could we improve upon bringing bringing glory to His name? If our intellectual understanding about the person of God wasn't enough, think about this. This God who transcends our understanding and our explanation through His love and mercy and grace allows us the privilege to become His children. Not because we deserve it. Not because we can earn it. Not because God looks down on us and says there's great potential in that individual. But simply because He wills it. This God that we cannot fully describe did the indescribable. The truth about what God has done. God incarnate came to the earth He created and lived among us and showed us who God is and what God is like and what God desires and how we can truly know Him. The Bible says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being and as incredible as that is it goes on to say in verse 14 and that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth if you want to know something about the glory of God you start with the study of the life of Jesus if you want to know something about the character of God you explore the life of Jesus if you want to know what God is like you evaluate the life of Jesus and if you want to know how you can know God personally you listen to the teachings of Jesus Christ Paul would expand upon this incredible truth in Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20 he Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. 
For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The unexplainable God. The incalculable actions of God doing what He has done so that we could know Him should cause us to say before our feet hit the ground, Father, how can I bring glory to Your name today? It is because of who God is. It is because of what God has done through Christ on the cross that the Bible declares in Philippians chapter 2, For this reason God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we aren't truly in awe of His actions towards us, we will be less inclined to bring Him glory. Thinking about how we can define and understand who God is, thinking about what this God has done for us, and allowing us to become His children, to be set free from and cleansed from our sin, to have the promise of an eternity with Him, what is our response to that? Well, yeah, that's real good, God. Thanks and everything. But what's next? Most were not in awe of Jesus when He walked the earth and explained to the people who the Father was and how they could come to know Him. His own people decided that He was a fraud. He was an imposter. He didn't fit the mold. He wasn't what they expected. They decided He wasn't what they needed. And so they killed Him to remove themselves from His presence. Man's response to the truth about who God is and about what God has done through Christ has really not changed much much from the beginning of God's revelation to us. In the life of Jesus, after He was crucified and buried and raised and then ascended to the Father, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Peter, the untrained fisherman preached his very first sermon, and he said these words, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless man and put him to death. 
The people's response to Jesus was no different than Israel's response to God throughout much of their history. They killed all of their prophets. They were determined to do what they wanted to do. And there wasn't anybody that was going to stop them from pursuing what their heart's desire led them to do. They chose not to bring glory to the name of God and instead chose to live how they wanted and different to the character and the actions of God. We read these indicting words from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20, verse 8, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Generation after generation after generation, the nation of Israel said, not your way, but my way. The people of Jesus' day who heard Him and saw Him and were in awe of Him said, Not your way, my way. And sadly in the church today, amongst those who profess to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we continue our steadfastness in saying, Not your way, but my way. I got my ticket to heaven punched. The problem that we face in our church today is that we are choosing to give glory to someone or to something else. And if we can't articulate the who or the what, it's probably yourself. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to climb the corporate ladder. We want fame and we want fortune. We want notoriety and we want the adulation of man. And the thought of bringing glory to God is little more than an afterthought until the crisis comes and we are made aware of how deeply we need Him in our lives. The nature of man rebels against God. It rebels against authority. It seeks to make ourselves numero uno. Even with our being given a new spiritual nature, we struggle with living in such a way as to consistently bring glory to God. It is a daily battle that we must choose to fight each and every day. So the question is, how can man bring this indescribable God who has done the impossible, by sending His Son to die in our place. How can we bring glory to Him? Well, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Is that our daily declaration? To crucify myself with Christ so that I can live for Him. Romans five six, excuse me, Romans six five through six and twelve through fourteen. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, which is the assumption since we're believers, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Why? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Do you see that? There's a choice. There's freedom. 
We have been released from the bondage and the power of sin. The conclusion that Paul makes in verses 12 through 14 is this. Therefore, do not let, do not allow, do not choose to have sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Do you see the picture image there? Here I am, sin. Here I am, pleasure. Here I am, rebellion. Here I am, disobedience. Here I am, declaring to live a life for me. Here I am, rebondage me. Re-enslave me. Paul says, you don't have to do that. Don't do that. You've been set free from that. Instead, we are to come. God, here I am. I am your child. I am your servant. I need you. I love you. I want to bring glory to your name. I am dying to myself today so that I can live for you. My friend, that doesn't happen accidentally. That happens willfully, intentionally. A choice we make every single day. Ephesians 4, 21 to 24. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, an intentional choice, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, a choice, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Our intellectual understanding of the person of God is to affect our attitudes and our actions towards Him. We bring glory to His name and show forth His holiness when we live our lives in conformity to His will for us living in joyful, willful obedience to His teachings. That's how we can bring glory to God. Living in disobedience will never bring Him glory and will not make His name holy amongst those we live around. The model prayer shows us that our first and highest priority is to bring glory to the name of our Father. The question is, how well are we doing that? Are we content with our pursuit of bringing glory to His name? Are we praising Him? Are we thanking Him? Are we blessing Him? Are we rejoicing in His person and in His character and in His actions? And if we believe that we are, here's the question. Who is taking note of that in our lives? You see, we're not called to salvation to live on an island of joy and satisfaction. We're called to salvation... To bring glory to His name. To understand and pursue His purposes. And to willfully submit to His will.
your name, your kingdom, your will. What's the problem? Me. What's the problem? Us. One day, and we have no idea when that day will come, we will stand before him face to face. No presence of sin, no struggle of circumstance. We will see the risen Lord exactly as he is. What will we say when we get there? What will he say when he evaluates our work? What will be the sum total of a life lived for Christ in the balance of eternity amongst those whom God has called us to bring his glory to. Pray with me, would you please?